2: 691 2173 or download your free investor's guide now at buylegacygold.com. That's buylegacygold.com. Hey, everybody, it's Mike Schellenberger. This is KFIAM 640. I'm sitting in for the John and Ken show and really thrilled to be here as a guest host. My next guest is an amazing, amazing writer and thinker. Her name is Anna Lemke. She's a professor of psychiatry from Stanford University. She wrote a brilliant best-selling book called Dopamine Nation. And I'll let her explain it, but basically this book argues that we can get addicted to just about anything, to social media, pornography, drugs of course, drugs and alcohol. And that you don't get pleasure without some pain, and the two things are sort of balanced. And we need to better—we need to do a better job of regulating pleasure and pain, or we're going to go sideways, like so many people are doing right now in our society. So, I hope think, I think Anna's with us on the phone. Anna, are you there?
0: Yes, I'm here. Thanks hey, for Anna. inviting me. Hi. Oh, thank
2: you so much for taking the time. It's such a pleasure to. To be able to chat with you, tell us a little bit about this book. is really special, and it's I can see it's. I just went on Amazon. I just you're just selling tons of copies. Tell us, you're a big shot professor at Stanford, but you wrote a book for us little people. What what made you want to write? <laughs> what, what made you want to write a book like this?
0: Um, yeah, there's no world in which I think I would call myself a big shot professor at Stanford. But anyway, my words. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah what made me want to write this book? Well, you know, I've been doing psychiatry for going on thirty years, and I've probably learned more from my patients than I've taught any anybody else anything worthwhile but after that much time, you know seeing patients get into really miraculous recovery from all kinds of addictions from gambling to sex to drugs and alcohol um you know plus the amazing neuroscience that my my neuroscience colleagues have been working on for the past 50 plus years i just felt like there was like a consistent Um, sort of theme as well as a kind of aha moment for me that would be worth sharing about not just the way the brain works in terms of how we process pleasure and pain, uh, but also about the world that we live in now and how this overwhelming overabundance uh, is mismatched for our ancient uh, reward pathways and kind of what we can do about it.
2: Well, let's get into that a bit. I mean, let me dumb it, see if I can dumb it down and and you can tell me what I'm missing here. But I mean, I read this book, which was that there's so many different ways to pleasure ourselves <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, we can get a dope with dopamine being this neurotransmitter that that makes us feel good, but then we get depleted. So you don't get something for nothing. You don't get that pleasure without feeling right. kind of depressed afterwards. And similarly, and I've been changing my own behavior, in part inspired by you and also because of your colleague, Andrew Huberman, who runs an incredible lab. I've been I run every morning. I take a cold shower. I wait to drink my coffee until I've done both of those things. And I find, you know, I'm able to get a better balance between the highs and lows of a normal day. That's what I took from it. But what tell us, what do you think? What's the big lesson from your research and book that you wanted people to come away from reading it with?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the, the main, you know, first lesson from the neuroscience is the lesson of homeostasis, which is to say that we have this powerful physiologic baseline, really in all biological systems, but including in our pleasure-pain processing brain system, and um, That I liken to a balance. So if you imagine that in your brain, there's uh, like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And when it's at rest, then the teeter-totter is level with the ground. And one of the most exciting findings, you know, in neuroscience in the past 50 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain. And they work like opposite sides of this balance. And one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. And our brains will work very hard to restore a level balance after any deviation from neutrality, either to the pleasure side Mm. or to the pain side. Mm. And the way that our brains do that, and this is really the key piece, um, you know, that – Intuitively resonates when you think about it But also has been found to be true Based on scientific research Is that the way that our brain restores A level balance is first by tipping An equal and opposite amount To uh, the other side Which is to say when we do something Pleasurable like we drink caffeine Or eat chocolate or smoke a joint Or uh, look at TikTok We get a little release of dopamine In the brain's reward circuitry The balance tilts to the side of pleasure But no sooner has that happened then that pleasure-pain balance um, um, basically tilts in the opposite direction to the side mm. of pain, an equal and opposite amount. And I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins that hop on the pain side of the balance, but they like it on the balance, so they don't get opposite. And as the balance is level, they stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And then the balance goes back to the level position. Mm. So basically this kind of pendulum or this balance um, is innate. It's reflexive. We, we mm. can't, you know, we can't change it. It's the way that we're wired. Nature made us that way so that every pleasure uh, is followed by its opposite pain. And that pain state then keeps us striving to look for more rewards Which in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger Is highly adaptive It's why we are the ultimate strivers um, You know And if we wait long enough Those gremlins on the pain side Hop off and balance is restored And we're sort of back to our homeostatic baseline But here's the key difference We now live in this world of overwhelming abundance At the touch of a finger uh, Swipe right or swipe left We can have almost any reward instantly Including uh, drugs that didn't exist before, right? Social media, video games, online pornography, uh, online shopping, online gambling, a cryptocurrency investment. I mean, you name it, it's all out there. And, And that has very significant repercussions for us, because what it means is that we're not waiting in between pleasures for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. That is for our baseline level of dopamine firing to be restored. Instead, what we're doing is we're reaching for another drug to make it faster to get back to baseline or even get back to the pleasure side. And the second rule of the balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar stimulus, that initial deviation of the balance to the side of pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after effect gets stronger and longer. In other words, those gremlins start to replicate and get more and more numerous and accumulate on the pain side of balance. And pretty soon, we've essentially changed our hedonic or joy set point. Now we have enough gremlins on the pain side of the balance to fill this whole whole room, which means now we need to keep using our drug of choice, not to feel good, but just to return to the level position and feel normal. And when we're not using, we're experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, and craving. So if we go back to you and your new morning routine where you run and you take a cold shower and you delay your ingestion of that first cup of coffee, what you are doing is you're actually... Um, you know, in a sense, hacking our primitive reward pathways, and you're intentionally recreating a, a world of scarcity where you have to do hard physical things in order to get your reward. You're essentially Uh, taking your pleasure pain pathway and you're pressing on the pain side. And as a result, those neuroadaptation gremlins are hopping on the pleasure side. So you are getting your dopamine in a very clever way, which is to say indirectly by doing hard things first. So you're paying up front for your dopamine. And we know from the science of hormesis, which is Greek for to set in motion, that when we expose ourselves to mild to moderate noxious or painful stimuli mm-hmm. like exercise, like ice cold water, what we're essentially doing is, t- is injuring cells. We're injuring the body, but to an adaptive degree that we were made for, and then our own homeostatic re-regulating mechanism is kicking into action and starting to make more dopamine and make more serotonin and norepinephrine and <laughs> endogenous cannabinoids and endogenous yeah. opioids. So that, that's very smart of you key. to do that.
2: Anna Lemke, you are the smartest person on addiction I've ever met. I'm so happy you joined us. The book is Dopamine Nation. I am Mike Schellenberger. This is KFIAM 640, filling in for The John and Ken Show. Stick with us. We're going to talk more about these issues of addiction and how to keep ourselves healthy after the break. I am best known right now because I wrote this book called San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, I wrote it because I've been heartbroken about the homeless situation. the so-called homeless situation. I wanted to figure out why it kept getting worse. Every year I've been here, I came to California in 1993 after I graduated from college. I actually was working on energy and environmental issues for most of the last 20 years, but I was so upset by the stories that people were telling me on the streets. The folks that we call homeless, I discovered, are overwhelmingly suffering from untreated mental illness and addiction. And I'm a little annoyed because many of the so-called advocates for homelessness have been really being pretty dishonest about this. They've been claiming that the folks are on the street just because they can't afford the rent. It's not untrue, but the you listen to the stories people tell and people get addicted to drugs and they stop working and they overstay their welcome with friends, family, they lie, steal and cheat, and then they end up on the streets. And I'm I'm not saying this because I'm being real judgmental. It's just... This is what's going on. I have three friends from high school, two of them, uh, three friends from high school that became homeless drug addicts. Two are dead. One is still struggling. We're actually making a movie with one of my friends, Leighton Woodhouse, who's actually working on the campaign for governor with me. We're making a movie about this because we went out and we just interviewed a lot of homeless people to hear their stories. I'm going to play just a little bit from it just to get a sense of what people are doing out there. And this is me just going up and interviewing a lot of homeless people and, and asking them about what their lives are like. Here we go. And what's your drug of choice, brother? Uh, heroin. Um, crystal meth. Meth and heroin. Crystal meth. Meth? Yeah. I don't know anybody that doesn't smoke You don't yeah. know anybody that doesn't smoke meth? No. We saw a woman who was pregnant just now. Yeah, yeah. What is she smoking? Vinny. She's smoking fentanyl? And she's eight months pregnant? Yeah. So, are you seeing more people showing up in psychotic states naked now than, say, yes. two, three years ago? Yes,
0: I think so. Uh, I don't know
2: what they're putting in this stuff. I don't know if it was aliens. I'm not trying to sound crazy. And stuff. No, no,
1: no, it's fine. It must be um, causing all these, like, psychological breakdowns. And I think that they had put, like, a transmitter or something. Uh-huh. Because I was able to hear and communicate, and it looked like I was
3: talking to myself. My job was-
2: that's a little bit of a glimpse of this documentary that we're working on, The Truth About Homelessness. It's a bad situation out there. I mean, if you're on social media or you live in Los Angeles, you see increasingly people that are naked in psychotic states. There's one that just went around viral, a guy jumping up and down on a police car last week, naked. It's disturbing stuff, and, you know, it's a tragedy. You know, when we say people are psychotic, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that they're basically not awake. They're not – it's the typical what we mean when someone's gone gone mentally insane. They're not in touch with reality. You heard someone in there. People often – I'll interview people. They'll come in and out of psychotic states. You know, so I interviewed a guy. He's You heard him there, and he was saying – well, I think I had a transmitter put in my ear by an alien, um, and then I said, "Well, do you think it was that, or do you think it was the meth talking?" And he said, uh, "Maybe it was the meth." And then he would kind of come back into it. So it's scary stuff. We know that the me- that um, you know some people have underlying schizophrenia. It's very rare; maybe one percent of the population. They end up on the street, but a lot of people are becoming psychotic from long term methamphetamine use. That's what we're seeing. And, you know, we used to when people would be out of control on the streets, psychotic, screaming at people, you know, living in their own waste, they would be arrested. They would be brought in front of a judge. They would have access to psychiatry. Somehow we were so liberal. We're so progressive somehow. And with the help of the ACLU and others, we got the idea that that was wrong to do that. And so what we see on the streets are open air drug scenes full of mentally ill people something like a hundred percent close to a hundred percent of the women that we interview have been sexually assaulted multiple times people steal for their habit so this idea that homelessness is a propaganda word really you know it's it's true we need more housing in california but that's not why people are on the street people are on the street because they have lost control of their behaviors and they become disaffiliated alienated from friends and family It's a tragedy. We're actually building a grassroots movement across California called the California Peace Coalition. We need to shut down these encampments. There's no alternative to that. That's what they've done in Europe. They shut them down. They shut down the open-air drug dealing. They get addicts into psychiatric care or rehab. If you go to californiopeacecoalition.org, you can see a full agenda based on the best available science of what to do, based on interviews with people like psychiatrists at Stanford and elsewhere who've been advising us. And it's, it's just something, it's a big blind spot we've got, you know, our hearts grow, go out to the people on the streets and we think that it's compassionate to not enforce the laws that they're breaking, but it's only by enforcing those laws that people are able to get the help that they need. So you've seen George Gascone, the DA of Los Angeles. You've seen Chesa Bodine, the, the, DA, who was just recalled in San Francisco. But you see, everywhere you have these very radical left district attorneys, they stop enforcing laws, and you end up with people dying on the streets. Just to get a sense of it, the year 2000, Americans died of drug overdoses and poisonings in the United States. This year, it's going to be over 107,000 people. That's an increase of 80,000 people. That's three times more people than die in car accidents, five times more than die from homicides. This is, we're in a mental health crisis in the United States. Our president is out to lunch, unfortunately, on this. Too bad, because he knows from his son, Hunter Biden, the ways in which addiction destroys our humanity. It turns us into people that we're not. You know, we've known, it's funny because, People act like it's a big mystery about what to do. But we've been dealing with addiction, hardcore opioid addiction, since after Civil War. After the Civil War, people had access to morphine, which was used for the first time in war. People were depressed. They started using morphine to get high. So we saw all sorts of like middle class, upper middle class people in the South and elsewhere start to use opioids. We knew that you have to intervene with family and friends. And, you know, when you ask a group of people, how many people here have had experience with addiction in their families? You know, at least half the half the folks have, and I suspect more than that because people are still embarrassed by this. They should not be. We are experiencing dopamine dysregulation. That's a very fancy way of saying that we are doing a really poor job of of managing this pleasure-pain balance that we just heard Stanford University professor Anna Lemke, author of Dopamine Nation, just talk about. I mentioned my own routine. You know, I'm not uh, free of of this need to establish the balance. I actually quit drinking three and a half years ago uh, because it had become a problem. Don't use any drugs now. Actually, the only that's not true. I use caffeine, <laughs> but even that one, I've learned to regulate a bit. You know, the new science of addiction shows that when you have these cravings that you know are unhealthy for yourself, you have to make yourself do something else. Go for a run, take a walk, go to sleep. I get up every morning. I run six miles and I just, you know, people always say, well, that's just you. And and maybe that is, but we know that if you can get up in the morning and get some physical exercise, you don't have to run necessarily, but get a hard walks, get your heart rate up, get your breath going. We know it starts your day better. The, la- the next thing I added on was a cold shower. Look, guys, I hated doing these things. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. I made myself do it because I knew it would make me happier. So it sounds crazy, but if you're feeling bad, go out and exercise. You're feeling stressed out. A lot of times, so anxiety and depression go together. You get If you're feeling anxious, that means you have energy that you need to burn off. You're, something bad happened at work. Something bad happened in your relationship. Go for a run. Go for a swim. If you can't run or swim, take a long walk. Just run fast. Do it until you get yourself a little out of breath and you start to sweat a bit, get your heart rate up. And then come back and, and you'll feel much better. Take a cold shower. That helps too. But the idea here, and this is not, the science is is very good now. It's gotten, they've now been able to prove these things looking at the brain. But we know that you've got to establish this balance, what Anna Lemke calls the homeostasis. You know, go buy her book. If you want to Dopamine Nation, you can figure this out or just go online. You can watch, you know, if you Google the Stanford addiction docs are the best. So much more to say about this, but look, today is Juneteenth, and we are going to talk about what a special day this is. The first time it's been a federal holiday. I'm Mike Schellenberger. This is KFI AM 640. I am sitting in for the John and Ken show. It's Mike Schellenberger. This is KFIAM 640, sitting in for John and Ken on the John and Ken show. I've been a guest on the show a couple times, and we really hit it off, but I was surprised they invited me back. I think it was a bit of a bit of a participation trophy, you might say, for somebody that just came in third in the gubernatorial election in California. Nonetheless, I had a blast running for office. Came in third, big grassroots movement, campaign to solve the homeless issue, kind of solving the addiction issue, solving the energy crisis. Our campaign's over, but our cause continues to go on, and I'm really excited about the next guest. This is a gentleman whose voice needs to be heard a lot more. Wilfred Riley, professor at Kentucky State University. He's gonna we're gonna talk about the good news on race relations, the progress we've made, the work we still need to do as well. But nonetheless, today is a special day. It's Juneteenth. This is a federal holiday. A lot of people are only celebrating it for the first time. It's actually the second year in a row, it turns out, but Nobody really had their act together last year, apparently. But this year, Juneteenth, is getting a lot more attention, and it's uh, including by me. It's not something I'd paid a lot of attention to before. So when I thought about, hey, let's talk about, you know, the work we've done in terms of race relations in America, but also the work we got to do. first person that came to mind was Wilfred Riley. Wilfred, are you with me? Yeah, sure am. Hey, great. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Yeah, glad glad you had me on.
2: You and I met a year ago. You are professor of political science at Kentucky State University, and we were both at a conference on wokeism. I've been called this show, actually, the host of this show, called me, what they say, like a reformed wokeist <laughs> or a wokeist reformer or something. But we got together uh, and we right. talked about wokeism, which is sort of about people that have become maybe a little bit too obsessed with race and racism and sex and identity politics. But you got up and gave an incredible talk about some of the progress that's been made that we need to pay attention to as a way to kind of orient us in terms of all the work we still need to do. So thanks for coming on and um, help us understand what, what is today's holiday about and why is it important or is it not important? You've got, counter, you've got contrarian, counterintuitive views. What do you think of Juneteenth? What is this day? Why does it matter? Why and, and what does it mean about race relations in America right now?
3: Well, I mean, there's, there's a lot there and the question. Um, Juneteenth, I'm cool with it. I'm doing some grilling today with some of my buddies. I don't I mean, there is obviously an element of pandering to saying, well, we're going to create sort of a second black independence day. But, I mean, unlike something like Kwanzaa, I mean, Juneteenth was something that my uncle celebrated as a kid. I mean, it was mm. the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was actually read out in much of the South. It began as a Texas mm. thing. So taking something that was a popular regional holiday and – I mean, and there are people that are celebrating a bunch of different things. I mean, Father's Day was yesterday. It's uh, it's Bald Eagle Day, and I live in a state capital, so there are a couple people downtown dressed like eagles. Anyway, I mean, they're there are a number of state and federal holidays in the country. that strikes me as a worthy one. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's a big deal. But I do think the context of the Juneteenth debate sort of is. I mean, when you refer to wokeism, one of the things we both said at that conference with Chris Ruffo and a bunch of other people is that wokeism is a pretty specific thing. Mm. You could call it sort of race and gender Marxism. Like it's the migration of this idea that society really is set up to oppress Group X, away from that arena of kind of economic, quantitative, critical theory, where it at least could make sense if you're talking about the rich man, quote unquote, into literally everything else. So a later wave feminist would say that they'd sort of replace the rich man with the man. Society is structured to benefit men. Marriage is a way for men to get as much sex out of women as possible, for example. Uh, whatever, whatever you might think about that. But critical race theory, the, the rich man is replaced with the white man. So society is structured to benefit white people. The purpose of something like a standardized testing requirement for Stanford or Caltech isn't to get in the best students. It's to keep out minorities who are disadvantaged by the cultural unfairness of math or whatever the argument is and uh, admit as many whites as possible. And so on down the line. And all of this... This kind of quasi Marxist, quasi Frankfurt race, gender stuff has really taken over the left during the period since I'd say maybe 2012. So I think the left is actually right on a lot of things. And I think you would join me on this. But I mean, healthcare comes to mind, mm. um, you know, absent some of the crazy green stuff. But, but the environment, we do need to, to pay attention to it. The Endangered Species Act is a good idea. So there's been less of a focus on that, though, if you look at the things that are being pitched in fundraising campaigns, as I think we both have, and more of a focus on things like gender transition surgeries for young kids, which is probably the number one issue being debated in the country right now. And that comes straight out of, quote unquote, queer theory, which is another one of these woke philosophies. So at any rate, at this event, really in a couple sentences, I broke down the sort of the facts on the ground in the USA, And one of my arguments, one of the things I say in academic papers is that it's extremely odd that we've chosen to focus on race and gender like this right now, because in empirical terms, we're way, way more tolerant. I mean, if you look at that classic definition of a racist as someone who wouldn't date or work for or vote for someone of a different race, racism has declined about 90 percent in the USA since the 1950s. And that mm. that's empirically testable. The crazy thing, though, is that mentions of racism in kind of the papers that matter, the Times, the L.A. Times, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, they've increased about 1,400 percent. Mm. So there's kind of a question of what are What's we going doing, on? especially yeah. on what used to be the center left. Yeah.
2: Wilfred, stick with us. So much more to talk about. This is Mike Schelmmer, KFIM 640, sitting in for The John and Ken Show. We're going to have more with Wilfred Riley on uh race in america after an update from deborah marks in the kfi newsroom it's mike Schellenberger. this is kfim 640 sitting in for johnny ken on the johnny ken show i've got wilfred riley kentucky state university political science professor and really amazing thinker on race relations he has documented of course acknowledging that we still have a lot of racism in society we need to do much more to confront it at the same time we are celebrating juneteenth and we're also recognizing this huge amount of progress we've made in terms of race relations in the united states huge most people vast majority of people except uh, biracial couples they vote they're willing to vote for people of a different race we've seen a significant decline nobody knows this of police killings of black men over time something i talked about in my book san francisco Wilfred and I met last year. He he stood up and gave an incredible talk about how race relations have improved. Yes, more to do, but race relations have improved. So then why is it that we seem to be more obsessed with racism and race relations than ever before? Wilfred, are you still with me?
3: Yeah, still right here. And it's a great question. I mean, so when you look at practical politics, I mean, you were recently a candidate for governor. Um, I mean, I have an executive role at a pretty major university. I mean, when you're actually out there in the world, um, you have to compare what you're working with to your opponents, I suppose, to other human groups. In the case of the USA, other countries, not to heaven. So, I mean, we actually rank countries in political science in terms of what you'd call outgroup bias. And the USA is the third or fourth least prejudiced country in the world. So it's, it's not just what you're saying what you're saying is true, but it's not just that we're doing okay or we're doing better than we used to be. We're one of the best human societies up there with Britain and Costa Rica, if I recall correctly. When it comes to large groups, large armed groups here, like blacks and whites and Asian Americans getting along. Yeah. So it's not... What's going should... on?
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny yeah, because I've traveled is... around the world. I traveled to Korea, Japan, Africa, mm. Europe... I... I find so much more racism everywhere else in the world than, I'm not saying it's not here, it is, but yeah, why is that? Why are we so obsessed with this issue, despite the progress? Well, I mean,
3: it's it's worth mentioning that the countries you mentioned, like Japan and the uh, sophisticated African countries, like South Africa and Nigeria, are mostly openly racist. I mean, around the world, it's not at all unusual to have an immigration policy that will let in only people of one ethnic background. I think that's Japan's. Uh, South Africa was divided between the white group and different black groups, like the Zulu tribe, all of which hated each other until like 1997. And these are these are G30 countries. These aren't uncivilized places. So, yeah, when you compare the USA in terms of, say, black, white relations to another player, you have to compare us to South Africa or Japan or France. You you can't compare us to utopia or Asgard. So why did this begin in this this one period of time? I think social media had a lot to do with it. Mm. I think a lot of modern trends from smaller ones like the pro-Anna movement in terms of you know physical appearance to the transgender, massive growth of the transgender community to real social justice. I mean, a lot of that has to be because you can link together on Twitter or Facebook with 10,000 people that think like you do almost immediately. Mm. And I mean, that's also the genesis of the Tea Party and the alt-right to some extent. Right. So I think that played a big role.
2: I mean, Wilfred, you also noticed something else, which is that it seems like this is this is not – the obsession with race is not coming equally from across the political spectrum. It's coming from the radical left. It's coming from folks that really are the same people who say that the United States is this evil country, that we're stained, we're just sort of original sin. I mean it, it feels like this is a particular left-wing phenomenon. I have to wonder – does it have something to do with the fact that national identity has declined a lot? You know, we're much more globalized. And it seems like when everybody's there's a strong national identity and we're all fighting the Russians or the Nazis or the Japanese World War Two. There's some sense in which we're all a single nation. And when that kind of goes away, we start to turn on each other. Am I on to something there or, or do you think it's I, that's I think- misplaced?
3: No, I, I think that could play a role. I've, yeah, there's there's a declining – one of the things that actually really is true, I mean, if you look at just some of the quant writing in the, in this field, the big sort coming apart, uh, is that the things that used to give identity that really did transcend race, like all males did that mandatory four years in the Army that largely crossed social class. I mean, almost everyone went to public school. Fifty percent of guys were varsity athletes. Almost everyone had a home church bowling leagues, like all of that stuff, participation percentages have declined by between 30 and 80%. Mm. So people are kind of falling back on those less healthy identity characteristics. Like when I think of myself, I think of myself as opposed as an American in terms of my social class, in terms of my friend group, in terms of my old athletic teams, that kind of thing. Um, being black or Catholic, I mean, it's, it's something I like, but it would probably be number five, six, seven. So if that's the first thing you identify yourself with, it's going to be very easy to think of people who clashed with your group in the past as enemies instead of countrymen. So there, there's a lot that goes into this. But again, this is very recent, and in terms of actual laws regulating discrimination or whatnot, we're one of the, the most tolerant countries in existence, certainly in terms of gay rights.
2: Wilfred Riley, you're a Kentucky State University professor, political scientist. People can find you on Twitter. You are fierce on Twitter. Your voice needs to be much more widely heard. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Mike Schellenberger. This is KFIAM 640. I'm substituting for Johnny Kahn, the Johnny Ken Show. Stay tuned for more discussion of the homeless drug addiction crisis in California after Deborah Marks' news break. Stay tuned. It's never been more important to diversify your financial portfolio.